0: Welcome to Zero Waste Code's very first episode, brought to you by Green Code. We are a tech startup based down in Cornwall, and it is our mission to reduce food waste in the hospitality and food sector. In today's episode, we speak to an award winning chef, Tom Westerland, who shares with us his experiences and how he has managed with the lockdown. We also caught up with fellow Cornwall-based entrepreneur, Raphaela Ferns, to learn about how her startup is addressing food security and biodiversity. And lastly, we hear from Lottie and Connor, who tell us about Biochar, an incredible nature-based solution to climate change. So keep listening to find out more. Here is Tom Westerland.
1: Thanks, Tom, for coming onto the podcast. Yeah, we kind of just wanted to hear a little bit about your story, really. You obviously got into chefing when you were younger, quite, quite young, did you?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I kind of got into it quite an early age. I, I was quite interested in some, from sort of 14 or 15. Um, used to do it a bit when I was in school, and then I had a part-time job where I was washing up and doing a little bit of cooking. And I was kind of just hooked onto it from that, that sort of early age. So then how many years were you being
1: a chef before you got the National Chef of the Year Award? So, um, oh, I was a chef for about eight, eight or nine years before I got the National
2: Chef of Wales Award. I, um, I I tried for it three years in a row, funnily enough. So the the first year I came third, um, lost out from the first first place spot, went to my head chef. Mm. And then uh, the second place went to a great chef called Nathan. Um who works for uh, Innistia Hall now. And then the second year, I got second place, losing out to a chef from uh, the Celtic Manor. And then the third year, I managed to take uh, first place, which was sort of what I'd always hoped for.
1: Oh, great. So, and then more recently, obviously, you work with a restaurant in Henley now, is that right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. So um, so recently, I've moved to Henley-on-Thames, absolutely beautiful place. Uh, just, just sort of as all of this uh, madness sort of happened with coronavirus really. So uh, so we'd started, all of the senior seniors had started at Croppers on the 16th, and then by the 20th, we'd been told that restaurants couldn't open.
1: So you moved to Henley just a few days before the lockdown happened, literally. Yeah, that's right. So I finished,
2: finished in my previous job, moved up the next day, started work a week later, and then the, the lockdown sort of kicked in. Crumbs. Which was a sort of massive shock
1: yeah i bet and is um are you the head chef there then
2: so there's a there's three head chefs so we're quite unique we've got three restaurants all under one roof um along with seven rooms so we've got two chef's tables that serve 16 covers one which does pan asian food and another one that does modern british and then we've also got a hundred seater grill uh which which does sort of again modern british food but uh We've got a big charcoal grill that we cook everything off. So there's a lot of uh, sort of influence from that that comes into it. So I'm the head chef of the grill kitchen.
1: Wow, that sounds very nice.
2: Yeah, it's it's quite a different concept, and uh, it's it's quite a lot to sort of look at and manage and set up as well, because you essentially got four businesses running under one roof.
1: So yeah, that sounds crazy. When were you about to launch? Then it was quite. It was in the twentieth, was it? You were about to launch?
2: That was it. So our launch date was the twentieth of April. And we had a, an amazing soft launch week planned out along with uh, a load of sort of parties. And then our official start date was the 20th, which we actually ended up opening a week earlier because we started running a takeaway to try and support the business and the, the sort of the workers we'd taken on.
1: Of course, wow. And then, so how have you shifted your business model now then during the lockdown? What's kind of happened?
2: So the business model, it's not massively changed. We're we're only running one of the kitchens at the moment, which is the grill. Uh, So we're kind of doing very similar food as to what we would have wished to do when we opened. Mm. But we've just scaled it back so that we're able to do it in a takeaway form. So everything is served in takeaway boxes instead of uh, obviously on plates. But it's been a great little opportunity to play around with some dishes, refine them and sort of see what the people of Henley want and also to give them a, a bit of a taster of what they will get when we finally open.
1: Nice. And have you had quite a good rapport with the Henley people? Have you got a nice little kind of community buzz going about the restaurant and, and, and the takeaway business and stuff?
2: Yeah, it really does seem to have hit off really well. I think we've really launched it at the right time because there were some restaurants that did it as soon as the lockdown kicked in. Uh, but we kind of had to wait around a little bit because we we were looking at the government furlough guidelines uh, quite mm-hmm. closely because initially it only covered you if you're on the payroll from the 28th of February. Uh, so everybody here kind of missed out on it. So we were kind of waiting to see if they'd extend it or if they'd change things around, which, which they did. But again, you had to be on the, on the payroll from the 19th of February. Not February, sorry, March. Oh, which wow. didn't really help because nobody would have been on it until the end of the month anyway. Yeah. So that's when we kind of made the decision to start the takeaway and uh, really start rolling with it. it. It's really hit off. We're kind of doing 80 to 100 covers a night at the moment, which, which is brilliant. Wow,
1: that's amazing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's more than we could have really expected. Uh, and the support from the local community has been brilliant. We're seeing a lot of return custom, and we're getting a lot of really good feedback on social media. And it's been, been absolutely fantastic, really.
1: That's so cool. I feel like I wanted to uh, um, talk a little bit about coronavirus and kind of what, how you, you know, there's been a lot of negative things that have happened, but there's like been some positive things as well. And I'm kind of interested in what you. I know it's hard to predict anything, but how you might think about how this has affected the industry you're in going forward. You know, like
2: it's quite a tough one. I mean, it's hard to predict what it's going to do for the industry without knowing what the government mm-hmm. guidelines are going to be when when we were allowed to reopen. I mean, the one great thing it has to look, especially for a new restaurant that's opening, is it really set the, set a challenge for us as a team to get to know each other, start working and sort of try and make a success out of it. Mm. And it really sort of pushed us to look at what the community needs, uh, what help we could offer and what they're looking for out of a restaurant, which was a great side of it. It was also a massive challenge to try and get suppliers involved um, mm. to see if they're still working, deliveries absolutely huge challenge especially considering i've i've been doing this for 12 now 12 years now Mm. and i've never run a takeaway in my life so going from figuring out how to create dishes that eat really well stay hot and serve well in a restaurant
1: oh yeah but that's a challenge yeah
2: yeah to try and convert them to look good in a takeaway box stay hot when they travel uh, (laughs) it, it was a massive challenge and it, yeah. it's something that having some sort of constructive feedback off of our customers has been brilliant with that. Just sort of figuring mm. out if it was a 10 or a 20-minute travel home, how did it travel, was it all right to be reheated, all that mm. side of it. So it, it was quite a challenge, and it's it's been great to sort of play around and rediscover what we do.
1: Yeah, that's cool. So I noticed um, in cooking that you get these chefs who – and recently in the last few years have really moved towards trying to cook with vegetables that are in season and local and it feels like some people are trying to think more sustainably about their menus and their ingredients is that something you've come across in in, in your time in the industry
2: oh yeah definitely i'd say over the past sort of two or three years even even more so you can see that the way that people are cooking it's about sustainability um reducing wastage Uh, and also looking at what is growing locally and being produced locally to try and support your local community. There's one thing that's also come out of this coronavirus Um, pandemic is we've noticed how supportive local companies have been. We've got an amazing butcher, which is across the square from our restaurant, and from day one, they've been very supportive, um, where sort of other companies have been closing down. That's an amazing green grocers and uh, dry store suppliers. So... When we're writing our menus, it's really sort of key at the moment to be looking at what's in season, mostly because it's more affordable and you can get hold of it. And also it's uh, it's using your suppliers to speak to them, to see what they've got an abundance of that you can help them out with, because the food wastage side of it comes on two sides, what they're doing and what we're doing.
1: So this is this coronavirus kind of has has actually helped us kind of be more aware of local businesses, local produce. Yeah, I really
2: think it's it's helped people realise that you have to take care of your sort of look at the community around you and sort of everybody has to support each other. Whether it's it be you're buying from small suppliers, going to your local butcher, going to your local greengrocer, even supporting them on social media if you cook something post a picture of it and tag them into it so that they can see what you're doing with it. And it's a great bit of social media for them.
1: That's really cool, actually. Yeah, wow. Well, thanks, Tom, for coming onto the podcast. Oh, amazing. It's it's an honour. Oh, that's good.
0: (laughs) Here is Rafaela Ferns. Um, My name's
3: Raf. I'm the CEO of Plotty. Um, I've got a CTO called Alex Wilkes. Um, currently we're in the middle of a rebuild of our platform, which is a seed sharing community. So we call ourselves a, a seed bank without walls. So seed conservation is huge. Um, and we're rapidly losing lots of species, um, and lots of strains that are not seen as commercial. Um, but they can become commercial in the future as the climate's changing and we need to look to our wild crop relatives. Um, One of the things that's happening is often seeds are preserved in these kind of physical seed banks, but they get locked up in these scientific establishments. So what we're really interested in in our network is how we can get kind of seeds out to the people and have a community network of people saving seeds and exchanging them um, across a distributed scale.
4: Brilliant, thank you, Raph. <laughs> can right. you can you explain a little bit more about um, how people are uh, how people actually work with you? What's the actual process of of spreading the seeds, as it were?
3: Spreading the seeds. Um, people sign up to our platform, and there is a sign up process um, because we have to really closely monitor kind of biosecurity. Um, So we had to get a sign off from DEFRA that we weren't infringing on any kind of plant disease and things like that. So we really closely monitor the platform. So people sign up, they create a profile, and then we've designed this really kind of specific list for people adding seeds. So um, we have like a set database, and so everything that's in the database is safe. And if they add those seeds, it's fine. And there's lots of like autofills to make it easy to add those seeds. But if anyone wants to add a variety that's not in our approved database, mm-hmm. we kind of get an alert saying this person's <clears> adding a seed. And then we review it and we're like, okay, is that invasive? Is that, um, you know, we, we kind of want to monitor that people aren't collecting seeds from rare protected species in the wild. Um, and then obviously we don't want, at this time, while it's illegal, we don't want those people sharing cannabis seeds. So we have to closely closely monitor the platform um, for that sort of thing so that we stay legal, but then also that we stay safe, so that we're positive for biosecurity. Um, so people add seeds to the platform, and then there's a central seed list um, that you can kind of scroll through and see what varieties are available. And you can also click through to people's platforms, um, to people's profiles, and kind of see what other things they've got available. Um, and in its current state, people kind of request things and then they approve them. But we're rebuilding the platform um, to make it quicker and easier to request seeds. And then we post out one of our specialist-designed seed-sharing envelopes that kind of move seeds from one person to the next. So we don't actually do any handling of seeds or any distribution of seeds. We just hand out the envelopes. That facilitate the exchange
4: okay so um so they they will uh they pay you perhaps something like under three pounds and then Mm -hmm. they're going to receive um a pack of on some kind of packaging whereby they can put the seeds in and send them on to the people that they want to share them with is that correct
3: yeah the um the (coughs) recipient pays so it's um currently there's seed exchanges happening on facebook um and they get quite complex because people are listing seeds for free but then on top of that there's there has to be quite a lot of dialogue to say well who's paying for the postage and packaging um and the person who's sharing things for free has to then put in the initial effort of paying postage and packaging posting it out um, and there's, it's quite a complicated logistical conversation, <coughs> and there's also potential for kind of privacy infringements because you're, you're sharing your address with strangers on the internet. But with Plotty, we've got around that. So we're the only person that sees both addresses. Um, so the privacy is better and on Plotty, the recipient, the person who wants the seeds pays for the service.
4: So they get the packages in the posts and they're already franked, you know, the postage is paid with the person's address on it. And then they just put the seeds in there and they go off, don't they?
3: Yeah, send it straight on. So it's designed to be really, really easy um, and reduce inconvenience. And one of the nice things that's really happened, and this has come from user testing and it just shows how important user testing is, um, is that some of the feedback we were getting initially is people were saying like, oh, I really want to write them a note. I really want to like say something to them. And our original envelope designs didn't have space to do that. It was when we got feedback from people that's like, oh, I I really want to like tell them about these seeds. Yeah. Um, That we've got a space in the envelope where people can write to each other. So they can do like a handwritten note um, where they can just tell them about these seeds, wish them well, and then they can tick like, oh, follow me on Instagram. This is my allotment account or something. And they can say whether they'd like to receive updates. But what I'm really excited about and the space I want Plotty to be in is this amazing research that's emerging about these wild crop relatives, novel crops, species that we need to reintroduce, um, some of which are edible, which is amazing. Um, and then getting making those commercial and getting those getting that research to market and getting that into either seed packets in people's hands or produce that people can buy in the shop. So we really want to be that, that consumer facing brand that's kind of helping through research um, and through engaging with the scientific community, disseminating this information to the general populace. If
4: you could just make it very clear how people can uh, get involved with you on, on the internet, by the internet and also via Instagram if you just give us all of your social media addresses and I'll get them personally from you as well so that we can annotate them on, on the video as well.
3: Sure. Um, so our website is um, plotty.co.uk. Um, it's a little bit buggy at the minute because we are recovering from huge unforeseen traction. So we're in the process of fixing that. Um, but there'll be like a, a sexy new website in a couple of months when we do a relaunch. Um, but you can still sign up and we'll keep you updated with all of that. And then if you're interested in seeing some of the um, the lockdown botany I've been doing and some of these interesting new wild crops um, and some of the species growing on the lizard down here in Cornwall, um, follow us on Instagram and that's um, at Plotty Grow. Um, and there it's kind of, a mixture of really showcasing that people have been sharing seeds on the platform and then also talking to you guys about what I've been growing at the farm and then also what wild crops are out there um, and the, the commercial implications of those.
4: Thank you. Raf, I just want to say thank you very much for speaking with Green Code.
0: Here is Earthly Biochar.
4: So we started
5: our business uh, nearly two years ago now. Uh, um, we we're both. We're looking for a way to sort of use our entrepreneurial spirit uh, for a way which will actually actively help with climate change. Um, So as as I got to my final year of my university, I was looking for a project. Uh, I did product design. I was looking for something to design which could actively make an impact. And it was a totally open brief. And I stumbled across biochar, um, literally just sort of fell out of the sky. Um, I'd never heard of it before. And then when I looked up and found that it could, help uh, it's a negative emission technology which means it actively sequesters carbon and not only that you put it in the soil and it grows better plants with less water and less fertilizer I was like wow this is incredible why isn't anyone yes, it? so what we're trying to do at the moment is we are trying to reach out to some farmers to do some UK specific field trials because a lot of uh, the research has been done in other countries and we want to do it on UK soil just to see see if it has the same effect. So we're working in combination with Reading University um, to hopefully sign up some farmers to do a field trial. So this this is great that we've come across you because of um, the sort of links that the hospitality industry has with farmers. It's, that sounds like a really promising thing. We could get some some trials going. So you could grow the crops with Biogel. The farmers <coughs> use 40% less water, 40% less fertilizer, while seeing a yield increase of about 12%. So that's the average yield increase that people are seeing with biochar. Uh, they could then sell those to the healthy business and store those vegetables. The Japanese cultures, they actually take charcoal and they put it in their vegetable drawers in their fridge. And what that does is it absorbs excess ethylene gas, which actually helps um, preserve the life of the food. But this is something we haven't tested yet, but we'd love we'd love to do this trial with, um, you know, sticking a massive sack of charcoal in a industrial sized fridge to see if it actually okay. makes things. Um, nice.
6: I'm start, like Connor said about growth trials. I'm starting a PhD in biochar in September, which will last four to five years, and I'll be I need to work with farms and end users to test biochar in different kind of locations and if anybody wants to take part in that research mm-hmm. um i'd love to hear from them okay. and then also um we are selling the biotar films so if anyone's listening who wants to try and make try and make biochar at home they can definitely give that a shot within our films um and also we do um sell some biochar at the moment but it's kind of on a bespoke basis so if you're interested um
4: just get in touch i think so you're selling you're selling aren't you? on your website aren't you yeah okay so basically for home users they could easily just buy it on your website couldn't they they could try it out yeah C- correct okay. okay so um so basically uh they can buy your product and uh w- through your website and you're interested in perhaps uh people trialing trialing it as well in terms of commercial farmers and also uh, commercial hotels as well. So yeah. you know, you'd like quite a few different types of people to try and get in contact with you.
6: <laughs> yeah, and, like, and so expanding in, in on hospitality, places like hotels and golf courses who also have like a form of land management um, and gardening because it can be used in the kitchen and then also can go straight out into the soil. Um, to look after the kind of gardens and parks. So, mm. yeah, absolutely. Anyone who has space where they need to kind of make it look pristine um, from a commercial point of view, biofile's a really good tool for them.
4: And what's, what's the... there? Is there a big difference in crop yield as well, like the size of crops, or are they different in any way? If, if they... you're already
5: starting with a really good fertile soil, you're going to get a modest yield increase, <laughs> which obviously at scale makes a difference. But the main thing is, is that you're actually saving... Um, 40% water and fertilizer.
4: Uh, roughly, from a, from a layman's point of view, what what is the process of make, how you actually make it? Is it just yeah. the case that you're just burning, you're burning the waste wood to make the biochar effectively? Is that right?
5: Yeah, so the way it works, so to make biochar, it's similar to making charcoal. So what you do is you have woody biomass and you heat it um, in a low oxygen environment. And what that does is it causes all of the wood gases, all the smoke, the organic sort of chemicals to be driven off from the wood. That is highly flammable, it's methane and hydrogen. So what we do is we direct that back in, and so what happens is as you're cooking it, and you're cooking it, all of your smoke is being combusted, so you're not producing pillows and billows of smoke like normal charcoal and, and smoke is methane as well so you know if you're trying to do it for a climate you can't make smoke and biochar at the same time so um yeah so you're heating it until all of the gases have gone and then what you're left with is pretty much pure carbon so by heating it and stopping oxygen from going what that does is it causes something called pyrolysis and that means separation by fire so what that does is by limiting oxygen you're preventing that carbon from reacting with the oxygen to form co2 so instead Uh, that that carbon turns into like crystalline, like a grey. The
6: way to describe it is it's it's the carbon structure that was in waste wood is now being solidified and it's crystalline. And um, they're very small particles with a really big surface area. So it's really, really porous. When that goes in your soil, it acts as a sponge um, because it's negatively charged. So it holds on to nutrients and water, which are positively charged. And the microbes then get attracted because it's like a feeding ground for them. Um, and they multiply. And it's those microbes which produce the beneficial nutrients for your plants. So plants actually get a lot of their essential nutrients from the microbes in the soil. Um, and these microbes, they live around the plant roots and something called the rhizosphere. So if you're adding biochar and you're increasing this microbial population, your plants have much more access water and nutrients and that's why it's so good um, at improving the plant's growth especially in poorer quality soils so biochar works really well in sandy soils um, and also really well in acidic soils so um, if anybody or if any farmers or audience that's listening have those two soil types in their garden it will actually work the best in those
4: brilliant yeah okay um, well thank you very. I just lo- want to say thank you very much for you you know for trusting me and talking with us
5: if anyone wants to sort of look anything up further we, we're active on Instagram we we post um, most days with sort of in-depth questions like stuff that we wish we would have known at the start of our biochar journey we're trying to um, educate people so at biochar, that's earth and then l y and then our website, um, where you can see pictures of our
4: growth tests and more information about biochar is earthlybiochar.com. Uh, OK, I'll make sure, obviously, I, I, we give that as written information as well.
0: Thank you for listening to The Zero Waste Code, brought to you by Green Code. If you'd like to keep updated with us, then head to greencode.net, where you'll find all our social media links and newsletter sign-up. Or feel free to get in touch on our email, contact at greencode.net.